So this evening, I would like to look at a few different things which kind of go together. So the first thing I like to look at mindfulness. Then after that, I want to look at what is the point of mindfulness. And I think one of the points is to make us be able to uh, be aware of contact through the senses. And then to become aware of if there is contact through the senses, then generally there'll be a tonality of experience. So first, looking at mindfulness, because in a way you have this term uh, from the, in the ancient language, it's uh, called sati, S-A-T-I, and for various reasons, at some point, it was uh, translated as mindfulness. Though I would say for many years, we talked about awareness. But why not? Now it's mindfulness. So again, in a way, when we talk about mindfulness, what are we referring to? What are we talking about? What are we trying to do? So I think we have to see that in a way, mindfulness is possible because we are conscious. So there is just a plain fact that we are conscious. And then there is just that I can be conscious, which is just the possibility of a human being among other beings. And so that consciousness then can be developed in different ways. You can just have like basic consciousness. And then you can have kind of becoming, you could say, more intentionally aware of certain things. And you could also say that the awareness could have a certain quality. So we're not just cultivating any old consciousness, so to speak, but from that capacity we have to be conscious, we are using that capacity in a way to refine it in such a way, to develop it in such a way that it will help us in terms of how do we cause harm to ourselves and others. I think it's very important to see that the mindfulness is in the context, the wider context, of you could call harm reduction in one way, and also, of course, cultivating beneficial quality. But we'll talk more about this toward the end of the week. So let's look a little bit as, you could say you have this mindfulness, you have sati, awareness, a special quality of awareness. And as in the Eightfold Path, it's called Samasati. So you can translate it in many different ways. One of them could be appropriate mindfulness. And then it has, I would say, different angle. You can look at it from different angle. And one word which seems to be kind of gaining currency at the moment I hear is could be translated this samasati <coughs> as presence of mind. That one of the things we're trying to do is actually to be present to what is going on as it is going on. So 
So it's really kind of trying to have a certain presence of mind on what is going on inside, but to the same degree what is going on outside and how one can influence the other. I think it's very important to see that mindfulness is not just about what's going on inside, but as a human being, we are in relationship. So in a way, we're looking at both, and I can one influence the other. One thing we have to be careful with this presence of mind is that in this present experience, there are many different elements. So it doesn't mean that we have to be aware of everything in what is going on now to the same degree. Because like, you know, then maybe you could do that if you were a super duper machine to be able to be totally aware and photograph everything and register all the sound and every other single thing. But we're not trying to become a kind of perceiving machine. Everything to the same degree. We have to be careful with that. And so generally, there will be something in the foreground and then the rest might be in the background. I think to see that we're not trying to go for this 100% all the time. But a little more, more of the time. I think that's what we're trying to do to have this presence of mind of what is going on inside and outside of morphing a little more of the time. That's what we, in a way, aiming for. But I think it's very important that this quality of being conscious, aware, mindful, present is not just like mechanical. I think it's very important that we are not just observing. We are not just staring at reality. But actually, the quality which is important here is to notice we kind of looking, meeting, and then there is this quality of recognizing What's going on? Is it beneficial to myself and to others? Is it harmful to myself and to others? So within that mindfulness, so it's not just like a mirror reflecting something, but you could say it's engaging with what is going on with that kind of, with a certain kind of discernment. Then there is different um, quality which are mentioned about these samasatis, this appropriate awareness, mindfulness. The first one is interesting. It's that it's not wobbly or floating. So actually, it's not a vague looking at things or a vague being aware of things but it's really grounded. So we're really trying to be grounded in what's going on. So we're kind of trying to be grounded with what is going on now, and not kind of like 
floating on a little cloud. Because, you know, in a way, observing, the term observing, that's why I don't use it so much, is because it gives you the impression you are kind of like, you know, floating above everything. Mm, yeah, yeah. Nice floating. <laughs> you know? But actually, it's more to ground in what's going on with a kind of a, in a grounded way, in a stable way. So it's not wobbly or floating. Also that there is a certain absence of confusion. So in a way, this appropriate mindfulness is orienting us in time and place. So there is a certain clarity, a certain orientation of what is going on here. Then also there is this very important point, which is we, the, this appropriate mindfulness is really helping us to engage creatively with what is going on. So we're not kind of like an astronomer. So the astronomer is here, and what he is observing is like way, 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 like, you know, about 10,000 light years away or billion light years away and it's like and I mean there is it's beautiful important to know sometimes but there is not much engagement but here you're really trying to engage with what's going on in myself outside of myself so in a way we are engaging the object in experience and so often what we do is that we, we, we are in contact with what is going on, I'll talk about this, and then immediately we comment on it, and then generally we go into abstraction about it. When what we're trying to do is kind of be with it as it happens, in an organic way, in an organic manner. And within that, I think it's very important that it's kind of a... Kind of a Often there is this um, definition of uh, non-judgmental. But the fact that it's non-judgmental doesn't mean it's not discerning. It doesn't mean it doesn't have discernment. It's just a way we talk about for us, judgmental means that we are judging something and generally judging in a negative way. And so that's what it's kind of uh, pointing out. You're not being mindful to judge what's going on. But that mindfulness as discernment, you could call a wise, compassionate discernment. It's really to help us to see more clearly with wise discernment. So as Stephen mentioned yesterday, there is an ethical quality to this appropriate mindfulness, appropriate awareness. This, I think, is a very key part. So within it, there is some wisdom, there is some compassion. And also within it, there is a wholesome groundedness. That, to me, it helps us to kind of be more in what is going on, in a stable way. So it's kind of, kind of helping us with stability. 
And I think one of the key within that is the sitting posture. I know we have been sitting for two days, and some of you might, you know, not more and more 45 minutes of sitting. It's a bit long. And, but actually, I think this is part of the groundedness. That actually, I know it is not easy every day uh, to sit off and on regularly for 30 minutes, especially for 45 minutes. But this kind of sitting still and having that, I would say, embodied mindfulness really grounds it. And then there is a how can we bring that quality of groundedness in the walking, of stability, of balance in the walking meditation? And then we can have the groundedness as we sit, and then feeling more like a kind of a tree. And then we have a groundedness, a stability as we walk, which help us to have this balance. But it also has this mindfulness, this exploratory, this probing quality. So it's not just gazing at what's going on, but it's kind of like, in a way, engaging, exploring what is going on. What am I thinking? So in a way, I know some of you kind of might think, you know, you had so many thoughts today. You know, you are kind of, I don't know, maybe you thought you had like kind of, you know, a big packet of thought today. But this is information. I think it's very important to see we're not trying to stop the mind. We're not trying to stop thinking. But we're trying to be mindful of what is going on. And what is going on partly is thoughts. What are we thinking? How are we thinking? How are we talking to ourselves? How are we talking to others? Is there benevolent quality in our thinking? Is it confused? Is it repetitive? One person, I think, one question, interesting question is, is this true? You're sitting there telling you, yourself something. Is this true or not? Sometimes it is, sometimes it is not. So there is this exploratory quality. And so in the various ancient texts, you had various simile, various examples to describe the different quality of mindfulness. One was a charioteer, so somebody on a chariot would kind of be a little above ground, and kind of see more widely, but also the charioteer has to be careful with the horses, so it kind of has to be in balance, so the horses don't go all over the place. So this idea of seeing widely, but with balance. There is again the idea of being upper tower, of gaining perspective. But not, I would see, I seem to be away from something. But personally, I would see to see something in a wider context. Because often we get caught in only one small part. And here it helps us to see the wider context of what's going on. Or there is a simile with the car. 
herder with looking at the various cow. And so he cannot be stressed looking at the cow, being behind them all the time, stressing them out. But he has to be have a spacious awareness, be relatively attentive, and relatively alert, just in case hmm, that one is going a little too far. Hmm? So in a way, that's what we try to cultivate, this sort of spaciousness, alertness, attentiveness, or also as a gatekeeper, so someone who protects from danger, someone who passes message. Then the last one, which I like very much, is the image of the plowman, that actually, like a plowman, the mindfulness in a way helps us to we need to help us to have a certain direction. The plowman cannot do, cannot you know, go all over the place. He has to have a certain direction. But also, the plowman needs to have a certain balance. Because if he pushes too hard, he gets stuck. If he's too high, not much happens. So again, he needs to have a balance with pushing the plow. And also, as you push the plow, the plow can reveal things by digging. Like he crap, there is something, the earth is open, and who knows? It can discover things. And in the same way, when we have that exploratory quality to the mindfulness, we might discover things. And then one of the things we, in a way, suggested to explore is contact through the senses. To say that as a human being, we have six senses. We see, we hear, we smell, we touch, we taste, we have the sense of touch. We also, in Buddhism, the mind is considered like a sense. And so in a way, with the appropriate mindfulness, caring, careful mindfulness, we can be aware of these different points of contact. And to me, that's what's so interesting on a retreat. We have more time to notice contact. We hear a sound, we see a sight, we have a taste, we smell something, we feel something. We think something. And so generally, we have the contact, and then we've gone with it. A lot of the time, we grasp at it. So we grasp at what we hear or what we see, or a lot of the time, we grasp at what we think. And then generally, when we grasp at what we think, we identify with it. I, me, mine. This is my thought, this is my sensation, this is my feeling, this is my story, this is me. And so by, in a way, grasping and identifying, then actually we start this process of limiting ourselves to what we, are, we grasp at in terms of contact. And then, 
we magnify it. And so in a way, the appropriate mindfulness will enable us to see, hey, what's going on? Because that's what to me is interesting, that suddenly you say something or you do something, and if you think, hmm, why did I say this to this person? Why did I do that? And actually, if you backtrack a little bit, it's because five minutes before you heard something, or five minutes before you saw something. I mean, nowadays, uh, we see what happened when we watch the TV. Personally, I don't watch TV very much. And I certainly don't watch the news on TV every 20 minutes. They're repeating the same thing. Because I think it has a huge impact on the way we feel and different things of that nature. So I just check the news once a day to see what's going on and to rejoice if nothing bad has happened. That's kind of, oh, nothing bad has happened today. That's a little, the way I use, kind of notice the news to see what's happening. But notice, to, so in a way, what happened is a lot of the time, there is all this contact, and a lot of the time we run away with the contact. And then we identify, we grasp, we amplify. And so in a way, the mindfulness is kind of, okay, especially on a retreat, especially on a silent retreat. Then it gives us more space and time to notice, oh, there was this contact. Hmm, what did I do with it? Did I grasp at it and run away with it? Like, I mean, one of the things you can do on a silent retreat is, you know, you go about your day and you're quite a lot of you, and then suddenly you think, you know, he looks at me funny. Why did he look at me funny? I mean, it's funny to look at me funny. I mean, everybody looks at me funny. There must be something wrong with me. Yeah, yeah. Nobody loves me. There's something wrong with me. I hate the world. So, in a way, you could have a small contact and actually nothing to do with you. And then certainly there is this huge thing that can go on. And to me this is fascinating. We cannot retrace every contact. But sometimes it's interesting. What do we do when we see something? You know, you see something, and can we just see it? Or do we go into some other abstract place with it? this remind me of this? Because we often go into commenting and then connecting, associating. I mean, no problem with this if you are an artist in your job at home. But here it's interesting. Can we stay with the contact of just seeing a tree, just seeing a person, hearing a sound, feeling a sensation? I mean, with sensation, Again, I mean, as I mentioned before, you have a sensation, especially if it's a, not an unpleasant sensation. It's like, whoa, you know, it's going to be like this the whole week. This is very interesting how contact, sensation, 
And generally, there is this kind of like magnifying. It's going to last a long time. It might or not. But to see what happened with that content, what do we do with it? And so in a way, the practice of the mindfulness with the presence of mind is to become more present to all these different contacts. Again, we cannot be aware of all the contacts to the same degree. But it's interesting to see what are the contacts that trigger us and what are the contacts that don't. Because, I mean, at any given moment, you could say lots of things are happening. So we generally are not bothered by, we ignore, and some is like, ah! It's kind of, ooh, we kind of grasp <coughs> the content. And that's why, in a way, the Buddha's teaching was about these two points. The point of contact, and it's at that moment when we bring this appropriate mindfulness, then there could be a possibility. Do I grasp at it? Or do I creatively engage with it? And I think a lot of what we're doing is working on that. So that in a way, over time, instead of being at the end of the story, we're closer to the beginning of the story. And then we might have a different choice. We might have a different response. But then the question might be, but why do I grasp at the contact? Well, because of the next thing, which is very interesting. The fact that we have contact, and I think this is one of the great insights of the Buddha. There is contact through the senses, and at the same time arise a tonality what is sometimes known as feeling tone, hedonic tone, affective tone. In terms of the language, the early language is Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A. And to me, it's a fascinating subject because I think this is what influences a lot of what we do. And so again, when we are on a retreat, we have more opportunity to see, oh, there is this contact. And the contact can be pleasant, or the contact can be unpleasant, or the contact can be neither pleasant <coughs> nor unpleasant. Generally, I say neutral for that one. And recently a friend at the symposium said, well, you call it neither. But we'll see if we go for neither or neutral. And so in a way, what happened? Again, we try, we not, what is very important in terms of the practice, we not trying to make everything neutral. We're not doing that. Because often sometimes we have that impression. The thing we also try not to do is not to stop experiencing pleasant tonality, or experiencing, un stopping experiencing unpleasant tonality. This is not what this practice is about. But the practice is about becoming aware of the tonality, 
and then becoming aware how, as the Buddha points out, we have underlying tendencies towards these different feeling towards. So if it's pleasant, I mean, sometimes it can happen in meditation. You sit there and suddenly, ah, you're calm, you're clear. And then, generally we think, how can I make it go deeper? Or how can I have more of this? So the, the next city, you know, I was doing this, I was doing that, and yeah, and wait, and wait, and nothing happened. <laughs> it's interesting. So generally when it's pleasant, we want to repeat it. We want it to continue. We want to have more of it. I mean, should I tell you, or should it be a surprise? Tomorrow it's Tuesday. <laughs> and so at Gaia House, sweet Tuesday. <laughs> so you might get a cake. So when I was told what cake, I thought, mm <laughs> I thought most of them are British, they should enjoy it. <laughs> so for me, it has managed to become neutral. <laughs> In the past, it was unpleasant. <laughs> so I think you're going to have to get something with rhubarb. <laughs> I am not keen on rhubarb. And so, in a way, this is so interesting. You eat something, you eat something which is pleasant. So you have a piece, let's say chocolate cake, for example. So you have a piece of chocolate cake, and you barely start your piece of chocolate cake, and you're already thinking of eating a second one. <laughs> I mean, you've not finished it, you barely started, and already, mm, this is so good. <laughs> I want more. So this is, we have this immediate reaction in a way. Mmm, I want more. And so it's not that we should not, cannot enjoy it. Let's enjoy it. But noticing what happens if we try to grasp at it. Because in a way, when we grasp at it, we're trying to in a way, manufacturing. We're trying to, oh, I want it to continue. So, you know, you eat a second piece of chocolate cake and generally it's not as great, you know, especially by the third one. You know, <laughs> this is it, this is it. No? So it's kind of, can we just have this one? Can we just appreciate this one without, mm, I want more of it. And just notice it, you know. In the same way that if you have a really good time with friends, you know, they leave and you say, let's do this again. And you think, let's create the same condition to have the same pleasant feeling tone. I mean, you can have another pleasant feeling tone, but I'm not sure you can have exactly the same one. Personally, I love playing uh, with a pleasant feeling tone. Of doing little experiment. Uh, because, like, for example, with a new thing, 
new things which are great. So, you know, you, you eat something, for example, and you have not had it a long time. So you think, wow, this is fantastic. Oh, you know, this mushroom, or whatever it is, you're like, oh, this is so good. And then when you leave, when you stop eating it, and then you go and do something else, you still remember, wow, those mushrooms or that cake. So, you know, let's say, you know, the cake, the mushroom were like, you know, eight. Plus eight pleasant. Mm. And you come out of the restaurant or the friend house and wow, so good. So you're still pleasant number plus six. And then of course what do you do in this condition? You generally go and have the same plate of mushroom or the same cake the next day. And you eat the cake the next day, you eat the mushroom the next day. And it's plus six. It's gone down. And then you go out and you think, mm, mushroom, mm, plus four. Mm. So it's gone down. And it's interesting, you know, trying to repeat something. And it's the same thing a little bit with uh, meditation. When we first start to do meditation or first start to learn about mindfulness, by contrast, it's often amazing. You have amazing experience. You feel clear, you feel open, you feel calm. Whatever it is you feel, you feel loving. And you feel, wow, this is amazing. But then you continue to do it. And then you don't have that comparison anymore. It's not new anymore. And then you wonder, well, why don't I have this amazing experience I had at the beginning? And that's a little the same effect that you cannot repeat the newness. But you can still, of course, benefit from the pleasantness. Be with it, without needing to grasp at it. Then you have the unpleasant. So the one thing you can notice, and it's kind of interesting with this appropriate mindfulness, is to notice that we need a lot of the time, to have pleasant plus five to notice it and to think, yeah, this is great, this is, um, I am well, this is wonderful. We need to, it to be quite high in terms of pleasant to think, oh yeah, this is great. But in order, in, in, with the unpleasant, we just need a tiny unpleasant to be aware of it. We're very fast. I mean, this is an evolution. This is a survival mechanism. We really need to be aware quite fast that things are unpleasant. But then what do we do with unpleasant? As the Buddha says, we have the un underlying tendency to push it, to in a way you could say to grasp in reverse. So we grasp, you could say negatively, which is going to have the same amplifying effect. As he says in the Salata Sutta, you have the pain itself, and then you have what you add to the pain. In terms of this is terrible, this is going to be like that forever, why is this happening to me? This is interesting. You are here, and it's painful, and sometimes you think, why me? But when you're thinking that, you're basically saying, why not somebody else? 
maybe it's not so compassionate. <laughs> Why me? Well, that's a bit the mystery of conditionality. So in a way, to notice when unpleasant feeling tone arise, then to see again there are different gradations of it. There is light, there is a little more painful, there is very painful. But if we, as soon as we have minus one painful, we react like it was minus ten, it's going to be very difficult. So in a way, back to the appropriate mindfulness, I feel it's to kind of see more gradation in terms of the unpleasant, more gradation in terms of the pleasant. In terms of the pleasant, it enables us to see more of it. But actually, there is lots of things which actually are pleasant, even if it's light pleasant. And with the unpleasant, that not all things are equally unpleasant. There is a gradation. And so in a way, to see how can I be with this different gradation. Like the first one, the light. Often we just have to wait for it to pass. We often don't have to do much with that one. Generally we observe it, we feel it, we know it, and then we see it pass. Then there is one which is recurring, a little more there, and then we can investigate what are the conditions that make this happen. And that's where here, the looking deeply, the experiential inquiry is so important in terms of being aware of change, being aware of conditionality, to notice, yes, unpleasant feeling tone arise, they seem to be a little repetitive time to time, but they're not always there. So then part of the exploratory quality of the mindfulness is to observe what are the conditions. Is it when I'm tired? Is it when I'm ill? Is it when I'm stressed? Is it I have to be more careful of my body? I mean, there are many different ways we can explore the condition. It doesn't mean that we will always know why we have an unpleasant feeling tone, unpleasant sensation, but we can explore the fact that it's not always there. And then when it's intense, unpleasant feeling tone, then I think in a way the appropriate mindfulness can help us to notice the power of attention. That if we pay attention to something, then either if the attention has this caring, exploratory quality, then we can experience things differently. But if we're not well, we might not be able to have that power of stability, of presence of mind, of exploring, of seeing change and conditionality. And then what we might see is that we don't need to focus on it because it's so there. But maybe we can focus on something else. We can focus on another content. 
And that's why then that's also become interesting in terms of the meditation. We can focus on the breath. We can focus on sensation. We can focus on sounds. And to see what happens if I move the focus away from something onto something else. And so that during the retreat can also be interesting in terms of unpleasant feeling too. Can I be with it? And by being with it in a certain way, can I experience it without adding, magnifying it? Or if I cannot stop this amplifying effect by putting the attention somewhere else, can I be with it in a different way? So again, we can explore. And then you have the neutral or neither. And then one of the reasons I organized a symposium recently on this topic uh, was because one of the things I was interested in was what, what do people think about neutral? Because in, a, in the Buddhist uh, tradition, people have different ideas about neutral. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Some people think they exist, other people think they don't exist. And um, so at the conference, there was somebody who really believed they did not exist. And he could prove it to me through the text. But then we had a kind of a guest passing by who also knows the text amazing. And he said, no, they exist. It's in the text. <laughs> so I love these moments where, you know, in a way, you have lots of Buddhist texts and ancient early Buddhist texts, Pali texts. And it's not that you can find everything you want in it. But if you look, generally, if you have a thesis, you can find some text supporting your thesis. <laughs> and if you have the opposite thesis, you can find some text. Or you can have another interpretation. Either you find different texts, or either you have a different interpretation of the same text. So personally, I believe in them. I mean, do they exist like, can you measure them? I don't know. But as a concept, I think it can be quite interesting to explore. And so the way I would look at this neutral is more as a baseline. That you go up, you go down, and that the baseline is more like a kind of a restful in terms of the organism. We cannot always be up, we cannot always be down, and so maybe the neutral is kind of like a restful baseline. But a lot of the time, as long ago in ancient time, a nun said, if you understand the neutral feeling tone, it can become pleasant. If you don't understand it, it can become unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And that's a thing I think nowadays which happen a lot and which can possibly be a little demonstrated during the retreat, in terms that meditating, especially sitting silently, is fairly neutral. So like in a way, especially if you try to be aware of the breath, I mean generally this is a fairly neutral object. So you are sitting, doing very little, which will lead to neutral, you're observing the breath, fairly neutral. So 
not much is going on. So it's neutral. And what is generally our reaction to neutral? It's boring. <laughs> and this is, in a way, a bit of the challenge of meditation on retreat. When you have a schedule like this, is that, you know, at times, it will be fairly neutral. And then there can be that quick kind of, you know, this is boring, and then it becomes unpleasant, of course. Personally, the way I would see neutral is nothing is happening. But at least nothing bad is happening. <laughs> this is already something. And nothing is happening. It's kind of generally restful. So personally, I kind of go a little toward the pleasant, tiny bit. So in a way, to, to look, how am I? If it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, how am I with it? And then I think the baseline can be useful in terms of if, for whatever different reason, condition, we might have quite a bit of unpleasant feeling tone. And if you have unpleasant feeling tone quite a lot of the time, and if you think that actually from being unpleasant, let's say minus four, minus five, I need to go back all the way up to plus five, that's really a tall order. But if you just have to go back to neutral, I would say it's much easier. So I think it's kind of interesting also about this different feeling tone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.